Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Hear now God's Word. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Perfection is always the ideal, it's always the goal, it's always the object. Perfect music, perfect craftsmanship. We could multiply this, but in all these, perfection is what we strive for. On the other hand, we often excuse ourselves and others by saying, well, I'm not perfect. But the fact of imperfection is not a legitimate reason for us to stop moving forward in the direction of perfection or maturity. Aaron and Amy, my son and daughter-in-law, gave me a new handmade knife for my birthday. I'm pretty proud of that knife. I've already cut myself twice with it. Um, and I looked up the maker of the knife. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of work. The craftsman, Joel uh, Bukowitz, said that, as I was watching a video about how he became a knife maker, said that he spent between 10 and 15,000 hours learning how to make knives before he became reasonably good at it. And I've, I've heard that kind of number before about musicians, about other people that it takes that kind of commitment and, and work and dedication to become really good at something. And so it takes time and it takes sustained effort to achieve maturity or perfection. And most of us grow weary in well-doing long before getting good at something. We stall out. Paul has told us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship. We are his handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He's at work in us to change us, to remake us into something useful. He is perfecting us. He is maturing us for his service. Paul gave thanks to God for the Christians at Philippi, saying that he was confident of this very thing. That he who had begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We've seen that Christ gave the church apostles and prophets. That is the Bible. We have a record of their work. And then he gave evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry 
for the edifying of the body in Christ. In our text today, I would like for us to focus on verses 13 and 14. He gave all of that until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Here we see further development of the ultimate goal of why we are here, why you're here today, why we are members of Christ Church. It is your lack of maturity in Christ that is the primary source of all of your problems, all of your unhappiness. It's a a primary source of all your problems, but it's also a primary source of all the problems of the church. Indeed, every problem in the world can be traced to the immature selfishness of mankind. Thus, the turning point for you and me. Anybody need a turning point right now? The turning point for you and me is that point where we die to ourselves and become focused on living for Christ. Paul begins here in this section to talk talking again about unity. Unity is the theme really of this letter to the Ephesians, but not just some vague kind of unity. It's a particular kind of unity with two parts that involve both faith and knowledge. It is a way it is by way of these two that we shall attain to a perfect or a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now a perfect man the perfect man that is actually being referred to in this text is the church. Now it certainly has application to us as individuals as we'll see but the the man the body the person if you will the corpus that's being referred to is the church. Christ is the head and we are the members of his body as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So the idea here is Christ is the head, we're the various parts of his body that have been assembled and together we are growing, we are being put together to be this mature man, this perfect thing, this beautiful thing. He gives us the natural picture of a boy becoming a man. By the way, the the idea of the the mature or perfect man is male. It's because we're referring to Christ himself. But it's the picture here of a boy becoming a man, and he refers to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And there's some debate on whether this is a reference to age or height. And I would suggest it could be either or both, because the whole idea here is uh, the picture of physical, the physical maturity of the body. This is not saying that each of us is going to be identical. In other words, that's not the goal, is for all of us to become just alike. We were all given different roles to play in the body of Christ, different functions, 
Uh, and like a great work of art or a complex machine, all the parts come together to make a beautiful whole. Seeing the commissioning yesterday of the USS Gerald Ford aircraft carrier might be another illustration uh, as I viewed this floating city full of the latest technology and weapons prepared to house nearly 5,000 people. They noted, though, is interesting, and I thought a good comparison here to how the church works, that even though it was commissioned yesterday, it will be nearly four more years before it actually sets sail. There's that much left to be done to check out the systems and make sure everything is working properly. Uh, so four more years before it's perfected and ready to go. So we must first come, Paul says, to a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, which means that we have to have a correct view and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The world continues to offer variations and alternatives to the only begotten Son of God. But unity is not had by watering down who he is, what he's done, or what he's taught. Jesus warned that whoever was ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. False Christ divide. The true Christ unites. The claims of this Jesus are universal and exclusive. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the place of unity when all, all of us come before the Father. There is one Savior, one rallying point, one unifier. And we see this in all of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. As the greatest prophet, his teaching is essential. He says in John 1.19, no one has seen God at any, any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. There's the source. There's the truth. There's where unity is found, is in what He says, what He has revealed. As our High Priest, He alone is the Lamb of God, who sacrificed Himself, who laid down His life for His sheep. As the king of kings, the kingdoms of this, of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so this knowledge of the Son of God to which Paul refers is specifically, the Greek word here, epigenosis, is a precise knowledge, a, a detailed knowledge, a, a true appreh apprehension of Christ. And so what that means, and this is really important to what I want to say to you this morning as your pastor, as we lead into this discussion about the nature of children, that this goes beyond an intellectual apprehension. There's some really smart people sitting here before me this morning. Some accomplished people academically. Some of you are really good Bible scholars. There's all kinds of knowledge present here today, and that's a good thing. But it's not a sufficient thing 
in regard to what Paul's talking about here. It's a necessary thing that we, be, that we know things. But it's more than this. It's much deeper. It's more than knowing about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. Paul describes his own pursuit of this kind of mature knowledge. When he writes to the Philippians, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So when Jesus laid hold of you, he laid hold of you to transform you, to change you, and that will happen as you get to know him, as you live with him and walk with him. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Whoever drinks this water, the water from his well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Have you, have you had that kind of water? Or how about this? Does the food... But does this describe the food you've eaten? Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and as I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And so if we are all to come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then we have to say, and not just say the words, to say from the heart, for me to live is Christ. Is that descriptive of you? That is my life. Christ is my life. If we want to grow up in Him, then we have to stop looking at ourselves. We are too subjective and too self-centered. That's what children are. We need more faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Unity And a byproduct, happiness, will result. And so, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You see, the Christian life is not just a continuation of the old life. It's not an additive. It's not an addendum. It's not something added on to my life. It's new life in Jesus Christ. The new life starts in stark contrast to the old life. 
Paul is going to develop this idea further as we go through the rest of this chapter and go into very great details and really some very practical applications of this. But since it's a new life, that means we all start as children. From infants to toddlers to teenagers to young adults to wise old men and women, that's the proper progression to maturity. The warning here is that we must be equipped, we must be fed, we must be nourished by the church so that we're no longer children. To remain a child is dangerous. There are reasons, good reasons, that you don't send your children out just to come and go as they please. There are some basic characteristics of children, of course, that make them susceptible to dangers, the dangers that Paul's talking about. And I want us to consider those quickly and apply them to ourselves. First, I'm going to deal with two basic categories. The first is that children have a basic instability. They're tossed to and fro, carried about like a piece of driftwood in the ocean. No ability to really resist the forces of nature. Children's moods shift on a whim. They can be laughing in one moment and crying in another moment and giggling in the next moment, all in a matter of moments, back and forth. Children lack self-control, and thus they are given parents to control them. And I'm going to insert a couple of notes, footnotes today when I get to them. This isn't a lesson about child training. Well, in one sense it is. We're the children. This is the church. We're all children being trained. But I'm going to say something else about child training. Your children are the way they are because you let them be that way. God gave you, as parents, to control them, to tell them what they need to do, what they need to eat, where they need to sit, when they can get up, when they need to go to bed, how they should respond to you, how they should show respect to others, when it's time to study, when it's time to work, when it's time to play. That's your job, not theirs. And if you just let them do what they want to do, They will not grow up. They will not become adults. That's your job. You're the grown-up. You're the model. You make those decisions until they can. That's the goal, is for you to take this person who cannot govern themselves and govern them and teach them how to govern themselves so that they can be grown-ups later and can repeat that with your grandchildren. That's the goal. But that's the goal in the church, too. To take us where we are and not say, okay, you're going to heaven now. We got your ticket punched. That's the main thing, right? No, it's not the main thing. It's it's a byproduct. But the main thing is for you to be like Christ. To grow up. That's the main thing. Here and now. Children are impulsive. They want it. They want it now. Sometimes your job is to tell them, no, you can't have it now. Yeah, but they're going to cry. That's good. Your children don't ever cry. You're not doing your job. There should be a lot of joy in childhood. A lot of joy in parenting. But there also must be some tears or you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Children are impulsive. They want it. They're selfish. They think everything is about them. Your job is to teach them it's not all about them. 
and have, they have difficulty looking at things from any other perspective. They are short-sighted. So that's the first set of problems with children, whether they're your children or whether they are you as a child in the church, in the kingdom of God. Second, children are easily misled, carried about by every wind of doctrine, tossed to and fro. Children are ignorant, but they think they know way more than they do. Ask any six-year-old. I know, I know, I know. Because he is a child, he's easily fooled. We have to warn him not to take candy from strangers. Why? Because he doesn't know any better. Again, a parenting note. Of course, there are parents who will plop their child down in front of a TV or an iPad, and a different sort of candy will be offered to them. And thus, ignorance is not bliss, but danger. And this childish ignorance is as true for you as it is for me, as it is for any toddler. All it takes is a lack of knowledge. No foundation, no standard by which to judge. And so Paul writes in he or, or well, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, so I'll say Paul wrote in Hebrews, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the ABCs of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. Here's the theme again. Paul's going to have this over and over through Ephesians. It's the word of God. Prophets, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers give you the word to equip you. The latter part of, uh, of this is going to go into the application of God's word. Throughout the whole Bible, we see over and over, it's about getting the word of God in you so it can take root, so it can bear fruit. So it can change you. So it can equip you. So that you can withstand the trials. So that you know how to respond to this or that. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. The child doesn't even know the difference between what's good and evil. What's good for them and what's not good for them. We have people in the church who make some of the craziest arguments justifying sin because they don't see anything wrong with it. They haven't figured out how this is bad for them, so it must be okay. I'll just do it anyway because I want to. Sound like a child? The church is full of that. And when we add the child's ignorance to the fact that he also usually doesn't like to be taught or disciplined, and that he doesn't like to submit, the problem is compounded. It's also common for him to think that he knows more than he does, and so he overestimates his own ability and own knowledge. Moreover, the child is also attracted to novelty and change. The new thing gets his attention. And thus, in our immature world, fads are the rule. The old thing is boring. Remember the Athenian spirit that Paul refers to as he talked about those in Athens for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were, foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear 
something new. And finally, what child doesn't like to be entertained all the time? The bigger the show, the better. I know I've used this illustration before recently, but it just fits, and we'll say it again. The three-year-old on the cereal aisle of the grocery store, there at eye level, all the children's cereals, designed to catch their eye, designed to sell cereal, color, cartoons, toys, and sugar, just like the perfect combination. General Mills and Kellogg know what they're up to, but the child doesn't. That's going to be your job, of course, to make those decisions. But the child is being tossed to and fro by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Madison Avenue calls it a profession. At the county fair, they're called barkers. Will Rogers called them suckers. Children who have neglectful parents who don't teach or discipline them are uh, destining them to, do, to remain children, no matter how old they are. You see, parents can tune their children out. These children remain selfish, ignorant, and foolish, and they never grow up. Children who disregard their parents' instructions and discipline do the same. They also can tune their parents out. These children remain selfish, ignorant, and foolish, and they never grow up. If we are to make progress as God's people, as God's children, if we're to grow up in Christ, then three things are essential. A realistic assessment of where we are in terms of being children. There would be a number of ways, if you need help assessing that for yourself. Some of that has to do with what you know and what you don't know. Just basic information about the Bible, about Christ, about theology. That's why learning things, learning information is important. That provides some foundation, but that doesn't... We need the rest to come along, and that is that we need to understand and... Uh, be able to put these together. That involves wisdom, understanding and wisdom. And we also need a realization that as children, we are in a dangerous place. So if you're not growing, if you're not maturing, if you're stuck, if you're stalled out, if your wheels are spinning in the Christian life, trouble is ahead. It'll show up in your family. It'll show up down the road. It's there waiting, and you're not going to be ready for it. And then there must be an embracing of the place of the church to provide for us the necessary instruction whereby we can become perfect or mature. And so let me just circle around where I began this morning. I want you to think about your problems, whatever they are. They could be relational they could be issues of contentment or depression or children or financial or physical or whatever. Whatever your problems are. Let me ask you this. If you were more mature, if you were more like Christ, would your perspective on these problems change? 
Would you look at them differently? Could you handle them better? Could you respond to them with greater wisdom and grace? Could you, as James puts it, for example, count it all joy when you fall into various trials? Does that describe you? When I have a trial, whatever that trial is, that test, whatever thing God brings into my life, that challenge, my first response is to count it all joy. If not, then you have some growing to do, maturing, because that is what maturity does. It looks at those things the way God intended you to look at them, to see them as an adult sees them. You know when a child, here's a little girl, a three-year-old, she has a doll, and she comes running in crying because her little brother, being her little brother, tore its head off. And there she's got the doll in two parts, and she's falling apart because her doll fell apart. And what do you do? You deal with little brother in a minute. You snap the head back on, or uh, you say, honey, it's going to be okay. See, it's fixed. What's the difference in your perspective and her perspective? You're a grown-up. Or if it's broken, you're saying, well, we'll get another one, or it'll be okay. It's not the end of the world. You're looking at that as an adult looks at it, and therefore your response is radically different. Can you imagine if, if she came running in with the doll with the head torn off, if you had the same response she did? It wouldn't be a functional place, would it? Your job is to say, honey, let's look at this. It's going to be all right. Come here. Let me give you a hug. Let's fix this for you now. See, it's okay. Okay. And so the little girl learns and grows, and she sees things a little better as she gets older and more mature. But we're that way. That something happens in our life, and we're falling apart Instead of going to the Word of God to say, how should I be looking at this? How should I be responding to this? Have I prayed about it? Have I thanked God? Or have I, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God? Have I done that? Have I done that basic thing? Have I prayed about this? Have I brought it to God? To God? Did I get my Bible out? and Did I find out what does God say about this and what I should do? All those hard parts about turning the other cheek and blessing those who curse you and don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but a blessing instead to actually do those things and see what happens? Or have I determined, oh, that won't work? I'll be the judge of whether the Bible is true or not. I'll make those assessments on my own. So... What do you need to do to make progress in Christian maturity? How can you grow in your faith and knowledge of the Son of God? Well, you can continue to wallow in your immaturity, or you can get busy learning and applying the Word of God. That's why God put you in the church. The same reason He put children into families. So you can be fed and disciplined. And so you can be perfected. As we do this together then, the whole body grows and matures. And then we show the world 
what Christ looks like. It becomes lovely and attractive. This mature man that the world so desperately needs to see. But that begins with you and me taking seriously our calling. For me to live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are your children, but that many of us uh, that many of us also confess that we have remained little children in our faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a shame to us that we remain immature when by now we ought to have made much more progress. We acknowledge that as a result, not only are we overcome by the trials and problems of this life, but that we also thereby affect the whole body of the church. Grant us a desire to grow up in Christ, to seek to serve his body and to do our part. Give us the faith and knowledge that will enable us to be stable and to resist being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, uh, the pastor there at Ephesus, a younger pastor. He says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, mature, perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So today you've had another meal from the Word of God, and I want to ask, did you eat it, play with it, pick out only the parts you liked, or just leave it on the plate? When I see you at the table, I can only guess or imagine what is really going on. Is he listening? Is she paying attention? Are they eager for God's Word or only eager for it to end? Is there a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? I don't know for sure. God does. I think of Jeremiah's response when he said in Jeremiah 15, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me a joy and a rejoicing in my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And then I think of the children's catechism question, can you see God? No, but he always sees me. 
Hebrews 4, 12-13, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so as we come now to the table, having sat under the word, having been instructed and called to Christian maturity, I urge you to come now to this table as God's children, as he's provided for us this meal, and to eat, and to eat the bread and drink the wine as it's intended to be, to call us back, to call our attention to the fact that we don't live for ourselves, we live for him. He purchased us. We belong to him. And so let us renew our commitment to him. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your saints give thanks to you. We open our mouths to bless your holy name, and we are especially grateful today for the kind providence you've shown us, both in times of delight and in times of trial. Indeed, you have worked all things together for our good in Christ. We gratefully receive your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have brought us one by one to participate in this covenant community of your saints, to live, to love, and to serve. Lord, you have made us a people before you. You have given us a name. You have given us a place to worship. You have given us a people to serve and love. You have fed us and built us up. You've given us friends and family. You've provided food and shelter. You've given us great cause to rejoice and celebrate in Christ. Father, we are not sufficient to render the thanks you deserve for one of the thousands upon thousands and thousands or 10,000 times 10,000 of the bounties, signs, and wonders which you have wrought within us. Bless us now as we gather to fellowship. Bless our meal, our rest, and our conversation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Amen.